This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg with my co-host Craig Blumenschein. Craig, happy Leap Day to you. It is Leap Day. It is a bonus little February day, and boy, it's something like 50 degrees, at least in the eastern part of the state, so I will take that kind of bonus. Coming up in the second half of today's show, our news review with Dave Thompson and Matt Oline coming in to talk about a taste of things, a really beautiful-looking movie for, you know, people who like to eat. <laughs> That's all of us. Right. But in the first part of Main Street today, Ashley Brad Strand is a professor at NDSU and he trains our state's future coaches. And he has a lot to say about the current state of youth sports. Dr. Brad Strand is a professor in the Department of Health, Nutrition, and Exercise Sciences at North Dakota State University. Dr. Strand, thanks so much for joining us on Main Street. Thank you. I'm very uh, happy to be here. What I'd hope we can do today is talk about the state of youth sports in your eyes, what's good, what's bad, and maybe recommend maybe some changes that you've thought about in your research and in your work. If I were to ask you the biggest challenges that are out there for youth sports today in your eyes. You know, I think first off, you gotta look at the entities that are involved. And basically there's the community, there's the parents, there's the coaches and the kids. And what is the purpose of youth sport for each of those entities? And for the community, youth sports can sometimes be a source of pride like in uh, Fargo-Moorhead's team getting to the Little League World Series. It's an economic driver where you have a under 10 hockey tournament that draws teams from California. And so the community can view youth sports from that perspective. Parents view youth sports as uh, sometimes living vicariously through their kids, certainly giving their kids an advantage to learn skills and develop you know, good social relationships. I think more recently, the fact that scholarships are such a thing available. The NIL licensing in college. So if your kid gets good enough, they're going to get a college scholarship. Well, college scholarships are like chum when you're fishing. You know, they're throwing it out there as this is a good thing and if you work hard you can get it. Well, very few kids get college scholarships. Like 1% of all high school kids get a college scholarship. So that's a non-starter. But for many parents, it is the starter. When their kids are 10, 11, 12. Exactly. And fair enough, for some parents, that might be the only way their kids are going to go to college, is by getting a scholarship. And so that becomes then their way out. So for, then for coaches, what's their real reason for doing this? And for most coaches, it's to help kids develop. It really is. You got those examples of coaches that are doing inappropriate things or saying inappropriate things, but for the most part, coaches are doing this for the right reasons and helping kids develop skills and helping them build character and value and being physical activity. And then what do the kids want? And for the most part, kids want to have fun. That's why most kids play sports. Does that change for kids at a certain age? Over time, funny you ask that question because when you ask children, little kids, why do you play sports? The answer is to have fun. Fargo Public Schools does a survey of their high school kids, and I brought a copy to show you, and the number one reason why high school kids play sports is to have fun. Winning is like 2% of the athletes say they play high school sports to win. To win. So when a school doesn't win, their coach is what? <laughs> Chastised, blamed, something. But most of the kids, they're doing it to have fun, to improve my skill, to develop fitness because I'm good at it. I like competition, to be on a team. Yet winning becomes the driver. And most kids are going, well, I want to hang with my friends. I want to play because my friends are playing. So here we are in the youth sports world. And there are a lot of teams. Some of those teams are not available to everyone. Some of those teams are not available to kids who would love to play. What should be done differently? That's the unfortunate thing. You know, economics has become an important part of being able to play youth sports. You know, ideally, if youth sports could go back to being run by parks and recreation departments and available for every, every kid in the community, we're better off. Let me ask a quick question, because you research this stuff. Why then have we started to worry so much about that 1% that you talked about just a moment ago, instead of the 99% who probably would fit in that model you just described? I don't know the answer to that question, but I suppose it has something to do with the recognition that comes from winning. The pride the community gets, the bragging rights of parents, 
coaches being able to say, I coach the championship team, although they're 10 years old. The chance to go to a state tournament when you're nine. To go to a national tournament when you're 10. Those kinds of things, I think, supersede thinking about having everybody participate. One of my guiding principles is to keep the talent pool as large as possible for as long as possible. Keep as many kids engaged for as long as you can because youth sport rewards early developers. The kids that are the tallest, the fastest, the bigger when they're nine get to play. The late developers, late bloomers, well, if they stick with it, they're gonna do okay, but they're not gonna stick with it because they're chosen last, they don't get on the travel teams, they don't make the all-star teams, they don't get as many at bat. They cut those kids and they're, they say, come back and try again next year. Well, how do you get better when you have no place to play? Nobody helping you. So it's a system set up just to reward those special kids, that 1%. And I would argue, correct me if I'm wrong, parents with means to support those kids who are the 1%. Exactly right, because what's it cost to buy the uniform now? You're on a travel team, every weekend you're going someplace to play, which means hotel room for you and your child and your children. And then you gotta buy the uniforms and the bats and the gloves and for hockey, the equipment. And then you have to go to the camps. If you don't have the money, you, you are basically left out. Are there solutions that can change that? Have you thought about that? You know, I have thought about that. And how do you give more kids opportunities to play on travel teams when they're coming from situations that don't have money? Is there a way that you can do a, a reduced fee? Well, then somebody's still gonna have to pay so the team can participate in the league. A couple years ago, I did a little project where I went out and raised money. I called it uh, Soccer USA or something. And we raised money and purchased soccer balls for all the elementary school children in two elementary schools in Fargo, disadvantaged schools. I went and found the schools that have the highest minority rates mm -hmm. and Title I free and reduced lunches. And we gave the, uh, every one of those kids in those schools soccer balls. And then we provided them with some free soccer lessons and tried to give them a little bit of an advantage too. So I don't know the answer to that question exactly. Economics is the big thing, and how do you get around that? So what advice, I guess, would I have you give to a parent who does have means, wants to either have their kid participate or even beyond that, organize a team so their kid can participate? What, do you, what would you tell a parent like that? You know, Parks and Rec provides some programming, but those programmings in many cases become like hit and giggle, and it's more recreational. And if you want your kid to de really develop sports skills, you're gonna have to get them on one of these. How do they do that? I don't know the answer to your question. Those are tough questions. Those that don't have certainly get left behind. You know, another one of my guiding principles is taking care of those on the margins. And I use that when I, when I teach my coaching classes. You got certain kids that are on the margins, and as a coach, you better take care of those kids. You gotta gather them in somehow. You gotta make them feel like they're part of the, of the team. They're sitting on the end of the bench. They're never getting any playing time. They're really marginalized, but you gotta bring them in. And how do we bring these kids in that don't have the means? Do schools then, can they share in this, I'm not gonna call it a responsibility, but in this effort to be more inclusive in a very thoughtful way? I think so. Uh, Fargo North has Spartan Youth Basketball, and they provide basketball practice and teams for, I suppose, I don't know what ages they are, nine through, nine through 12 or something like that. And I think everybody can, can join in that. Now, the second thing gets to be, when you don't have the means sometimes, how do you get to practice? You know, kids can't drive. If mom and dad can't drive them there, they, they can't take Single part. parent family where mom's Single working. Single parent family, maybe? yes. And so we need to structure practice time so that kids have an opportunity to get there. But that's another challenge. And then coaches get mad at kids for not showing up on time when the kids have nothing to do with getting there on time because they can't drive with mom and dad bringing them there. And mom and dad have legitimate excuses. And the coaches then sometimes chastise the kids. And so that's really welcoming, isn't it? How important is youth sports for people that have been successful and have participated? And can that help us understand why folks in the margins should really be a part of this? Well, without a doubt. Uh, you know, first off, sport, youth sport today is a $20 billion industry. $20 billion. $20 billion is going to 70 billion by 2030. It's bigger than the NFL. So it's not going away. It's just gonna keep on getting bigger. However, the number of kids participating has gone down. So why are kids quitting when the industry is getting bigger? 
So that's, that's something we've got to figure out. And some of the reasoning would be because of the early specialization, because of all the travel involved, because of the games that are on TV, the little kid games that are on TV, kids are just tired of, of so much of that that they're just pushing back. Now, sports like tennis and golf, numbers have increased. But team sports, numbers have gone down for kids participating. That in soccer, in volleyball, in basketball, basketball in baseball. Tackle football, uh, lacrosse, things like that. Are injury risks a part of that? Yes, they are. And, you know, we certainly hear about the concussions in every sport. And so certain parents have said, you know, I'm not going to let my kid play football, for example, because of the risk of concussions. What do you think about that as somebody who's really vested in understanding youth sports and the benefits later? I guess it may fall down to training of coaches and yes. training of youth sports leagues to talk about these yes. things. And I didn't answer your first question about what are the benefits mm. of, of youth sports, but certainly being engaged in any kind of a team activity, a team sport, uh, um, drama club, music, whatever it is, you certainly learn to work with other people. You learn some responsibility. You learn leadership. One of the good things about being a multi-sport athlete is you learn different roles as an athlete. Because in one sport, you might be the superstar leader. In another sport, you're the sixth man or the 10th man or the 11th man, and you learn a different role there. And all that's important in terms of developing character and, and responsibility and self-efficacy and self-esteem and those kinds of things. Is it your view that kids are specializing more today than they were two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago? Much more, much more. I did an analysis one time where I looked back to my high school. I counted how many kids played three or four sports, and I went down through the years, and the number of multi-sport athletes today is certainly down from what it was you know, 10 years ago and, and 20 years ago for sure. So the pressure to specialize because of the scholarship possibility, parents feel trapped. You know, they gotta get their kid in there. They have to get them specializing. They have to get them the special coach. They have to get the travel team because it's, I call it entrapment, parent entrapment, because if I don't, I'm falling behind. Or really my son and daughter's falling behind. <laughs> but I say I am because I'm so connected with them. Here's what I find this interesting. You talk to a parent and they say, uh, we got a game today. And they say, who's we? They say, well, we. My daughter has a game. I said, it's not we. I said, your daughter has a game. But see, this is how invested we are. It's, it's we. We. Like, we are playing. We're hitting with more power this year. I said, who's we? <laughs> well, my daughter's hitting with more power. I said, oh, okay. Is this at all a urban-rural issue in North Dakota, in your eyes? Or is, the, is it pervasive everywhere? Yeah. Certainly, the kids in rural North Dakota are more diversified in their sports. Schools have a limited number of athletes. Which would, you would say is a good thing. Which is a good thing, yes. And so if you play football, the season's done, you play basketball, the season's done, you, you run track or do something. And in the summertime, you, you probably are sometimes working on the farm, maybe playing baseball, who knows, maybe go to a camp here and there. Now, at some point, you know, there's nothing wrong with specialization. Really, for kids that are like 6 to 13, we want them sampling a lot of things, try a lot of things, play a lot of sports. Uh, once you get to like 15, now maybe you're going to start cutting back. So I played four sports in high school, and when I got into my sophomore year, it was down to two sports, and, and then I finished up playing two high school sports. Um, and then at some point, you're investing in it. You're going to sample a lot of things. You're gonna, I'm going to pick these two and specialize, and now you're going to go full board invest in this. But that's not until you're like 16, 17 years old where you now we're going to hang your hat on something. If you were the king of youth sports in the country, would you eliminate travel teams for kids under a certain age? And if so, what's that age? That, yes, I would. And you know, what's crazy is uh, you got some hockey teams that are elite, you know, whatever elite means, you're 10 years old and you're elite. And you travel to Minneapolis to play teams and other teams from Fargo traveling to Minneapolis to play in that same tournament and I'm thinking why travel when you can play each other right here and this is kind of silly you know but they're doing it if I was in charge probably 12 maybe like like fifth or sixth grade are national organizations looking at these and I'm thinking of like uh, USA soccer you know that's a good question AAU amateur athletic union they have national championships 
for every age group in many sports all across the country. So I would argue they're not looking out for the kids because it's all about winning a national championship at age nine or age 10 or age 12. One time I was walking through the airport and I saw a young boy, he might've been five or six years old, hit a big trophy. And I said, hey, what do you eat the trophy for? And dad comes over and dad is smiling. He said he was in a karate tournament in Washington, D.C. We're in the airport in Baltimore or someplace. And uh, I said, oh, that's pretty cool. Did your son win that? Yeah, he, he did. He got first place. The trophy was as big as the kid. I kid you not. <laughs> now, how do you top that in your life? <laughs> You'll never win another trophy bigger than you in your life. And why give a kid a trophy so big that it's bigger than him? But AAU is giving out awards and trophies and ad nauseum to try get people to come to these tournaments and claim they're the, the state champions, the national champions, or whatever champions. Little League Baseball has been doing the Little League World Series since 1947. There have been less than 50 players that played Little League World Series that made it to the major leagues. That's all. And so what happened to the rest of them? They dropped out. We do know the research shows that when you specialize early, you are less likely to be active as an adult. Sometimes it's injuries, sometimes it's just, I'm tired of it, I've had enough. And if you wait and invest later on, you're more apt to be active for a lifetime. So that's pretty important. What have we learned about the mental health issues relative to youth sports? Well, you know, we are putting so much pressure on these young kids to perform to meet up to the expectations that mom or dad or coach has for them. I mean, there's enough for them with their own expectations. And now you have to please mom or dad. You know, so the game goes on. You're look, the kids are looking over to the bleachers to see if mom and dad are watching, if mom and dad are saying anything. And the game ends and you get into the car and certainly dads more than moms, the research has shown, starts telling the kids what they did wrong. Mostly it's what they did wrong, how they can do it better. And this is gonna turn the kids off faster than anything else in the world. Just let them be. The game is over, go get ice cream and have fun. If they wanna talk about it, talk about it. But most kids don't. Talk about mental health issues. I mean, the state of America right now with mental health issues, due to social media, you know, trying to keep up with everybody else and, and then you got mom and dad pressure and you got coach pressure and wow, that's a lot. And so at some point, something gives. And then a stigma comes with that, right? If you get labeled that you have like a struggle, pretty soon there's a stigma and, and you got problems. You couldn't keep up. Couldn't keep up. You're, You're not, not strong good enough. enough. You gotta have mental toughness. And we use the word mental toughness probably inappropriately because most coaches talk about mental toughness. They're meaning that you can physically take it. If you can physically take it, you're mentally tough. Well, I could argue they're two separate things. <laughs> yeah. I want to interject here. One of the yeah. most interesting pieces of literature that I read about this when my kids were growing up was the Matheny Manifesto. And Mike Matheny yeah. was yes. a major league coach for the Cardinals. He was a catcher by trade, but he wrote a book called The Matheny Manifesto. Essentially, when he got fired as a coach, he had to go do something. And he was asked, I believe, it's been a while since I've read it, to coach his local high school team. And he said, I'll do it, but this is the way I'm going to do it. And he wrote the Matheny Manifesto. You can go to MatheneyManifesto.com, I think, and read a seven-page summary of that. In my opinion, every parent in the country should be given that. And it talks about exactly what you just said. Once the game's over, what should a parent do during the game? What should the parent do during practices? What should the parent do? It will come as a major surprise, I think, what Mike Matheny writes about. I think Mike Matheny got away with that because his reputation as a professional baseball player. If it would have been you or me writing that manifesto and giving it to the parents, I'm not so sure they would have accepted it the same way. But what he said was spot on. Back off. Yep. It's the kid's game. It's their time. It's not your time. It's their time. Let them experience it in the way they experience things. Some advice I recall was drop them off at practice, pick them up when practice is finished don't hover over practice. Exactly. Go to the game, clap a little bit, and then go get ice cream after the game. Exactly, yep. The research that I've done with kids, uh, I did a project called The Voice of Athletes, and we asked young kids, what were the positive things with your mom and dad at the game? What were some of the negative things? What were the, some of the positive things with the youth sport experience? What were your experiences with the coaches and so on? And so for the parents, positive things were being there. Be there, give me affirmation, cheer me on. Negative thing was not being there. Unwelcome advice was number two. 
and then criticizing. So the kids want the parents there, but they want them there just to be supportive and giving affirmation. That's what the kids think. You know, I think, when I think about youth sports, I think of, of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if you remember what that was at all. Way back in the psychology yeah, class somewhere. Exactly. <laughs> and, and so the, the bottom level of that is uh, physiological needs, having food, having clothing, having sleep. The next level up was safety. And so when I teach coaching classes, we talk about what does safety mean to kids coming to baseball practice? What does safety mean? And if you're not safe, you're not gonna come back. So safe from ridicule, safe from getting hurt, safe from getting into fights, safe from a coach insulting you, safe from being picked on, okay? So if, if you're safe from those things, I'm coming back to practice tomorrow. If not, I'm not coming back. And then the next level up gets to be connections. And so you, you bought into it now, but if you don't connect with anybody, you're not coming back. And so the coach has to intentionally connect with the athlete, and the athletes have to intentionally connect with, with, with each other. Well, if you're, if you're ostracized and if you're the marginalized kid, now nah, I'm gonna go find something else to do, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna drop out. 70% of kids drop out by age 13, kids that play youth sports. If, if we say youth sport does all these wonderful things for kids, well, a great portion of them aren't getting those wonderful things. So something is amiss with what we're doing in our youth sport programs. What questions should leagues, youth sports leagues, ask themselves at the end of every season? I would like to know, you know, what's your metric for measuring success? And one metric that I think is important is retention of kids. Nationally, they use the word churn. Churn is how many kids, they play one season and drop out. So 40 to 50% of kids do that. Why are they dropping out? That's a huge issue. If you got FM Athletics football in town, and if they have 400 kids playing this year, well, what's the retention rate for next year? If it's 50%, I would argue that you guys didn't do a very good job. Now, I don't know what the retention rate is. I'm not even sure they measure it. But if it's 90%, you go, well, kids are coming back. Something's good about this. They're having fun. They're connecting. Coaches are good. So I would use the retention of kids coming back as a metric, one metric to measure a success. Because if they come back, they're enjoying what's going on. There are many coaches, I think, who are well-meaning, like you said much earlier in the interview. They really want to serve their team well. Yes but they have no training. They have no history of understanding what that means. How can they get support? If you're a high school coach, you have the, the state high school coaches conference that you can attend and get updates on coaching education. Well, let's just say if I'm you're, if you're a, a parent, dad coaching my 14-year-old baseball team yes, or whatever. I, I would like to see the youth sport organizations invest in more coaching education with the coaches. Bring in people, perhaps like myself, who are, my job is coaching education. I can teach you what the appropriate practices are for a certain age, what the scope and sequence should be for teaching a certain age group of kids. I once watched a youth football coach. He was doing a drill. If you know football, they, had, they set out the dummies and the kids were supposed to step over the dummies. And these were 10 year olds and they're struggling to do it, and the coach comes over and he's mad at the kids because nobody's trying and nobody can do it, and blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, it's not that they can't do it. The dummies are too high up in the air. They can't lift their legs that high, they're stumbling. I said, put a rope on the ground and have them just step over the rope, and I said, every kid is gonna have success. That, that's an appropriate practice. So sometimes it's just the coaches not recognizing scope and sequence and inappropriate and appropriate practices. And so that's where coaching education comes in, and, and I think where, where the associations could bring in people that could, that could mentor them through some of these things. So, you know, so many of the youth league coaches played sports. And so if you played sports, obviously you have an idea that you think you know how to coach sports. It's different. But it's different. And coaching. <laughs> it's a different thing. And, and, and the, the biggest thing for me is the psychological way that the people treat children. They're not many adults and you can't treat children like adults. What age should tackle football be allowed? Yeah, I wish that wasn't until uh, junior high school. Dr. Brad Strand is a professor of Department of Health, Nutrition and Exercise Sciences at North Dakota State University. It's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you, I appreciate your time.
After the break, Dave Thompson reviews the news and Madeline reviews the movie A Taste of Things. That's all still ahead in Main Street after this. For Prairie Public, I'm Danielle Webster. Minor flooding is being reported along the Missouri River in the Bismarck-Mandan area. Andira Travnicek is the director of the North Dakota Water Resources Department. A major ice jam just near Fox Island and the Heart River confluence just south of Bismarck is what we are uh, observing right now. Uh, so that's why people are probably starting to see that, that rise in the river that started yesterday afternoon. The Missouri exceeded the 14-and-a-half-foot minor flood stage level at the Bismarck Gauge this morning. She says the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers agreed yesterday to reduce flows from the Garrison Dam. The daily average flow was at that 25,000 CFS. Uh, that has been reduced today to that 22,000 CFS. And then tomorrow, uh, 19,000 CFS. Travnicek says warmer temperatures over the next day or two could help reduce that ice jam. The State Board of Higher Education has approved to grant Chancellor Mark Hagerod up to 30 days of developmental leave to prepare to teach a class at NDSU on artificial intelligence as well as a complete as complete a book on technological change. Hagerod says he will prepare the syllabus for the course, work with instructors at NDSU, and be available for lectures. The board's vote was 7-1. to one. Board member Jeffrey Volk was the lone no vote. He said he's hearing from a number of of people from both inside and outside of higher education about the proposal. This is one of the few items ever that I've gotten feedback before a meeting suggesting it's the wrong thing to do. And to be frank, I, I tend to agree. We've got a lot of professors in our system. Why can't they be the ones developing the programs that are needed for cybersecurity and AI? Hagarod says the field is new but expanding rapidly. He says he will use the time in blocks during the spring, summer, and fall. For Prairie Public, I'm Danielle Webster. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg. Happy Leap Day, everyone. A day to keep the calendar year synchronized with the astronomical or seasonal calendar. And, of course, as the weather warms, animals begin their mating rituals. As we learn in today's bird note, sandhill cranes have a bit of a leap in their mating dance. This is Bird Note. In the rosy glow of a sunrise on a southwestern marsh, a pair of sandhill cranes calls in unison. With a graceful leap, wings outstretched, the two cranes welcome the last days of February. The stately cranes are courting, renewing an annual dance they perform in earnest as the days lengthen into spring. The dance begins with a downward bow, the crane's long, slender bills nearly touching the ground. Then, like enormous marionettes pulled deftly upward, the cranes leap several feet off the ground, wings outstretched. Bowing and leaping, raising and lowering their wings, the cranes dance on as the sun rises. Sandhill crane pairs remain together for life, and their spirited dance plays an essential role in reaffirming this bond. The crane's exquisite dance complements beautifully their rich rolling calls, one of nature's most memorable anthems. The elegant sandhills will leap and dance a few days more before migrating north to nest. You can see a video of sandhill cranes in their courtship dance on our website, birdnote.org. I'm Mary McCann. I'm Ira Plato. On Science Friday, we wonder about the secrets of nature and meet the scientists finding the keys to the universe, like Black Hole Maven Jan 11. I think it's really important as a scientist not to put a belief system first. The whole point is to explore the unknown. Come explore with us. It's all on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Science Friday. Listen every Friday evening at 7 Central, 6 Mountain on Prairie Public. Welcome back to Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Craig Blumenshine. Dave Thompson, Prairie Public's news director, joins us on this leap day. Dave, did your calendar work okay today? Actually, it did work okay, but I personally can't get used to the 29th. Every four years, I go through this. You know, well, I'm just happy for all of those folks who have birthdays today. They actually right. get to celebrate on their day. In just a moment, Matt Oline will review the movie A Taste of Things. But before we get to that, 
Dave, let's talk the news. The North Dakota Republican caucuses who choose North Dakota's selection for the Republican presidential nominee are upcoming. That's right. They're going to be Tuesday night. From what I understand that there are four candidates who are going to be on the ballot for the Republicans and either the candidates themselves or surrogates are going to be speaking to them. It's going to be via Zoom is what I was told. Governor Burgum is going to represent Donald Trump speak, but Nikki Haley is going to be on Zoom live. Should, should be kind of interesting. I think. There are 12 sites around North Dakota where people can vote and anyone can vote, but you need to make it in person at one of those 12 sites. North Dakota Republican website has more information about that. I was told by Bob Harms, who you've had on Main Street, that we should know maybe who's going, going to have the delegates by about a quarter to nine that night. Dave, there's been a pertussis outbreak in Cass County. What do we know about that? All we know at this point is that, yeah, the, the cases have really sharply inched up, and there's guidance from Cass Public Health that people need to be vaccinated for this. And if they have been vaccinated beforehand, maybe get a booster. And I was thinking about that myself. I think it's been a while since I've had a booster for pertussis, and maybe I should get one too. But these things happen once in a while, and it looks like it's becoming cyclical. You know, maybe three or four years, nothing's going to happen. Then cases start popping up. So Cass County Public Health said people should just be aware of this. And it's whooping cough is what we're talking about. I need to get my vaccination status with that checked as well, Dave. I don't know, quite frankly. Yes. The Industrial Commission has approved $300,000 for carbon capture education and marketing. This was debated. It was debated, and it was actually passed by the legislature. They were going to allocate 300000 to 450000 to a firm that the Industrial Commission would pick, and they picked this AE2S Communications. There, shall we say, there, there's some objection to it. There were a group of legislators, and it was a bipartisan group of legislators, who wrote a letter saying you shouldn't do this. One of the leaders, Senator Magrum from Hazelton, appeared at the meeting and basically said, why are we doing this when we've got court cases? And, he, and uh, Governor Burgum said, well, this is not germane necessarily to court cases. It just talks about the issue entirely. Court cases are going to go on. This is just a way to get the message out to people that it, this is one way to save the coal industry in North Dakota and also use enhanced oil recovery because that's what they use the CO2 injections for in oil wells. Dave, how will this education and marketing campaign commence? That's a very good question. I think it's going to be a work in progress because they just got, they just awarded the contract. So I'm thinking we'll probably see something by fall. We'll see some kind of effort, whether it be maybe some flyers, maybe some advertising, maybe some personal appearances, that type of thing. Dave, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers has awarded a $12.8 million contract for the Oxbow Hickson Baki, am I pronouncing that right? Ring levy. You are. You are correct on that. This is the final portion of the Fargo-Moorhead Diversion Project, and we've been talking about that for years since the 1997 flood, that they came up with this idea of the public-private partnership to build this flood-controlled structures and to make sure that you don't have to do as much diking in Fargo-Moorhead when you have events like that. This is going to be interesting when this gets finished because it was a little controversial at the time about Oxbow and Hickson. You still hear some people who are complaining about the loss of farmland if water has to be impounded. Those who support it say this is going to help prevent economic losses in what used to be the real driver of North Dakota's economy and still is a big driver of North Dakota's economy outside of the oil patch. Dave, taxable sales have been up more than 11% compared to 2022. A little bit of a caveat, gains weren't as great towards the end of the year as they were at the start of the year. It's funny that that happened that way. The increases were driven in western North Dakota by the oil industry. In eastern North Dakota, they saw what Brian Croshus, the state tax commissioner, was talking about, more of a normal growth level at about 4%. That was the last quarter of 2023. It'll be interesting to see what happens in 2024. He says, yeah, we'll probably see some growth, but it could be tampered by commodity prices, which especially in, in eastern North Dakota, commodity prices play a big role in that. The DOE is working on mining rare earth minerals. This is a topic that has come and gone and come and gone, and here it is again, very important to our national security in many ways. Absolutely. Now, what has happened is that in talking with the Department of Energy, they said lignite is a good candidate because he said it's easier to get these minerals out of lignite. What we're talking about are minerals that are used in cell phones, computers, maybe batteries in cars and electric cars, things like that. What they've had to do in, in the U.S., they do some mining 
anything of that, but they send it to China for processing and China sends it back. And now there's an, there's a, an effort to build a processing facility in Texas, the first of what could be several, and they could do it all in the United States and don't have to worry about Chinese involved. Dave, a task force on teacher recruitment has now met and continues its work. What do you know about their most recent meeting that was held in Bismarck? They were talking about some of the issues that are basically keeping people from going into teaching or losing teachers after they're hired. Pay is one, but one thing that came out many times was respect. Teachers do not feel respected. They're working on ways to see if they could change that narrative right now because teachers really used to be respected, but there's been some educational issues driven by some some outside groups, and, and the teachers are worried that they're the ones who are getting the brunt of the criticism. Dave, I'm wondering, too, if this is impacting young people who may have thought at one time they would go to college and become a teacher, but now maybe are having second thoughts. Oh, uh, there's probably a lot of anecdotal evidence, and I think they're trying to collect some evidence, hard numbers on that. And it looks like there are some hard evidence numbers. So this task force is going to be working for a while to see what they can do and get the interest back up in becoming a teacher. We often don't talk about police blotters, Dave, but this story is about fake IDs and quite a significant fake ID operation that has now been interrupted. Yeah, a 19-year-old man in Fargo, he apparently sold over 500 fake IDs and made about $40,000, and now he's uh, facing charges of felony counterfeiting and felony illegal control of an enterprise. Well, I haven't, I haven't seen a story like this ever, I don't think. Dave, a Republican legislator, has resigned and is moving out of state. Does that impact anything? And I'm talking about State Representative Cole Christensen. Well, it'll impact in that district. They're, they have um, endorsed a replacement already. His name is Johnston, Dan Johnston, and he had been the chairman of that district. And, of course, you had uh, Senator Wabama, who is also running in that district, and also Representative Kiefert who's running in that district. So they do have a full slate of Republican candidates. What is interesting, and I'm trying to trying to track this down, is that the Democrats have also come up with a slate of uh, candidates in that district as well. So it could, could be one to watch. Remind us, Dave, of the process of what happens when a legislator resigns. How is the new one then appointed? Well, then that is up to the district. If it's a Republican legislator, then the Republicans do have the opportunity to replace with a Republican. Same with the Democratic Party. That was a change in state law several years ago. They don't have to hold a special election unless they feel they need to and they can request from, from, from the governor. But it is up to the district to uh, choose a replacement. Dave, another story reported by the North Dakota Monitor. A big story that we've been following is a prosecutor could take next steps on deleted attorney general's emails by the end of the month. What's the latest that you would have for us there? Well, it looks like that the whole matter was given to the Montreal County State's Attorney. That's very common in this, and especially because in Burley County, one of the people who's involved in the investigation is working for the Burley County State's Attorney's Office. Then they punted it to um, McLean County, and McLean County, let's say, declined to take the case, but Wade Engett, who is the Montreal County State's Attorney, is reviewing this 100 131-page report from the Montana investigative firm that took a look at it and then may have something to say about charges. It's been a fascinating story, and I think there's a lot of unknowns yet. And of course, we're talking about the deletion of former Attorney General Payne Stedgem's emails. Absolutely. Dave, what's your team working on? Well, of course, we've got the caucuses election next week. Well, I have something you know, North Dakota has the only state-owned flour mill in the country, and it processes North Dakota wheat. It has become the largest mill in the country, and it had a very good 2023, and we're going to take a look at some of the things about what happened and why and how things look for 2024. That's one of the stories we've got coming. And it looks like we'll be looking at more in-depth things on teachers that we mentioned earlier and talking to some classroom teachers and how they're satisfied with their jobs and if they're not satisfied, why. So important to the state of North Dakota and really to the country is impacting this teacher shortage. We've been reviewing the news with Dave Thompson. Dave, thanks a lot for joining us. You're very welcome. Glad to do it, Craig. Madeline reviews a taste of things that's next. Support for Prairie Public is provided by Bill Dean, Realtor with Alliance Real Estate of Bismarck, serving the Bismarck, Mandan, and Minot areas from homes and ranches to rental properties. More information at BillDeanHomes.com.
there's the fanfare. That means it's time to go off to the movies with our resident movie critic, Matt O'Lean. Matt, a delicious-looking <laughs> French movie here, The Taste of Things. Food is one of the number one things that the French do well. <laughs> oh, they, they love it, and they love their wine, and The Taste of Things is now playing at the Fargo Theater. So this is a French film from 2023 starring the Oscar winner Juliette Binoche and her former uh, real-life partner, Benoit Megamel. Uh, they are co-stars in this movie. And so it takes place in 1885 in France at the Chateau, very rich uh, man uh, played by Benoit Magamal. He's a, he's, a, he's a cook who employs Juliette Binoche uh, as, as his cook as well. They're both really good cooks, and this is what they're kind of known for. And so she works for him, but they've been lovers for years, and he wants her to marry him and all this kind of thing. And so, but the overriding thing about this movie directed by uh, Tran An Hung, who was born in Vietnam, but his family came to France uh, after the Vietnam War. And he, so he's basically a French filmmaker born in Vietnam. The overarching thing of this movie is cooking. This is maybe the most intricately detailed movie about cooking I've ever seen. I mean, there are endless scenes and shots of pot stirring and oven mitts and people tasting food and people drinking wine. It's almost yeah. to the point where where it's almost too much for me a little bit. And I'm, I'm <laughs> not a cook. I am not a good cook at all. Yeah. I love eating food, as, as many people do. But I think this is really a movie for foodies yeah. and people who really like to cook. So I think at some point I was almost like, give, give me more of a story here. And there is a story going on here. He is assigned to cook for this, this visiting prince. Uh, he cooks for his friends. You know, he and Juliette Binoche cook for everyone. And they have this apprentice young girl who wants to be a cook that wants to work for him as well. And mm -hmm. let me say that Megamel and Binoche are wonderful in this movie. If there's any animosity between them in real life because they're former partners, you can't tell in this movie, that's for sure. And that's because they're great actors. So he gives a phenomenal performance. The movie looks great. I mean, the cinematography, you can feel the French countryside, Ashley. Mm -hmm. You can feel the... The, the you know the, the the spices and the sauces and the mm. vegetables and the meat that's being cooked. I mean, it's it's to the point where you you want to go eat something. Don't go hungry. No, to this no, movie. <laughs> no. But I do think for a lot of audiences, it might be slow at times, and it kind of slogged for me at times because I was like, this movie could be 15 minutes shorter. It clocks in at 135 minutes, <laughs> and like I said, it's gorgeous to look at, and I like the film. I just I just I wonder if if audiences are going to find it a little too slow. And I, I did look on Rotten Tomatoes, Ashley. This is one of those movies with a critical and audience split. So the critics generally have liked this movie quite a bit, and I liked it, didn't love it. Uh, but the audience review is like 70% positive, and the critics are 97%. Mm -hmm. So I do think some audiences going to this movie are maybe – judging it as a little too slow, a little too sloggy, if that's the right word to use. And well, I, I felt that too, Ashley. I wanted it to move a little quicker at times, but it's a very leisurely paced mm -hmm. movie. And that's fine. That's what yeah. the director's going for. And what he's really going for is this this love of food, this love of cooking that the French that the French really love, kind of like Babette's Feast and movies like yeah. that. So well, yeah, you know, I my first job outside of college was in France, and mm -hmm. I had a two hour lunch break, and that was just a <laughs> yes. standard lunch break, uh, at least among uh, teachers. But I think it was fairly standard outside of that. And I will admit, I used to get just. It, it was too much for me. Yeah, now yeah. I'd go, I would love to have that back. I did not know how great uh, that I had it. But yeah, that's, uh, it is very much, I mean, it, is it fair to say it's just a film made for French audiences and not for the American audience? Especially uh, talking about that, that deep love of that's possible, time but for they food. clearly have their eye in the American market because you know here's the movie you know in in U.S. theaters, okay. and it was France's uh, choice to be in competition for the international feature Oscar, okay. and I'll get to that in a minute because that's a huge controversy right now in France. But uh, no, I think I think it's for lovers of cooking and lovers of okay. food. I just think it's a little too slow for my liking. And I'm, I'm okay with leisurely paced cinema. 
it just felt, and, and my friend John Bodine, who went with me, felt the same thing, like, boy, that could have been shaved by about 10 to 12 minutes. The relationship between uh, Benoit Magamel's character and Juliette Binoche's character, who plays Eugenie, is really the driving force of the movie as well, and their love of cooking, and she loves to cook for him, and he loves to cook for her. So there's a really, there's a sweetness to it as well, Ashley, mm-hmm. with their relationship, and this young girl who who's kind of the apprentice. But there are scenes where they're sitting around with their friends or they're tasting. They're doing taste testing. And at some point, the scene goes on so long, you're like, is anybody full yet? Or are they going to keep eating? Mm -hmm. It's just endless eating. And I I think the the tolerance for this movie and the love for this movie is going to depend on how much much you can watch pots being stirred, (laughs) food being put into pots, oven mitts being put on, and wine being drunk. Because that's really... That's really the sure. crux of the movie. But mm. I did like it. It's gorgeous. Sure. It's you can feel the countryside. I just don't know if this is the movie I would have pushed if I was a French voter. Yeah, what is this th- controversy? So there is a seven person committee in France. Imagine only seven people getting together and, and submitting their their Oscar nominated film from France. And the vote was four to three, my understanding, to give it to Taste of Things versus Anatomy of a Fall, which is up for Best Picture. It just got all the Cesar Awards the other night. Justine Triette is nominated for Best Director. I think Anatomy of a Fall is the better movie. And I think the feeling is France could have won the Foreign Language Oscar, which we won't know till March 10th. But I think it would have been the favorite to beat Zone of Interest had it been France's nominated film. But mm. it wasn't. And the taste of things didn't even crack the top five. For the, for the international feature Oscar, Ashley. Oh, okay. So I think there's a lot of feeling that they, they picked the wrong movie, and there is some backlash they against... they for political Yeah, reasons. Justine Triette made a very politically charged speech at Cannes last summer when, when Anatomy of a Fall got some awards, and it was kind of taking shots at the French film industry and the French government. And I think the feeling is some people within the French film industry felt that was an unfair speech because her film got made with with government help from France's film board. So I think there's some backlash against Triette, but I think they did pick the wrong movie and they needed to just pick the best movie. And I think Anatomy of a Fall is a great movie and Taste of Things is a good movie that might be a great movie for people who love to cook, if I can put it that way. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. Well, for Oscar trivia, Mm -hmm. um, Juliette Binoche won an Oscar for her role in The English Patient, uh, which was nominated for 12, won nine, including which um, distinctive award? Um, Distinctive might not be the the best word for that, but it was the first to receive... Hmm. Well, it got Best Picture, which mm-hmm. has been controversial over the years because a lot of people think English, English Patient is overrated. Mm. Uh, a distinctive award for English, not it's, was it makeup? No. Ray finds his crazy makeup. Well, that's in that movie? no, that no, actually, um, okay. what was distinct uh, me, about the fact that they did win for Best Editing? Maybe that's the better way to phrase it. Oh boy, Best Editing was that the first film, first year that they had sound mixing or something it like that. It was the first digitally edited okay. film oh, to win an Oscar. So it wasn't edited for, by a splicing yeah, film together. Yeah, first I get digitally it. Edited, Great so. question, Ashley. <laughs> All right, we've been to the movies with Matt Oline. When you hear arts programming here on Prairie Public, know that it is supported in part by the North Dakota Council on the Arts, and we thank them. This is Dakota Datebook for February 29th. On this date in 1912, the University of North Dakota's student newspaper, The Student, reported on a lecture given the previous Saturday by Dr. Robert Charles Wallace, a geology professor at the University of Manitoba. Although Dr. Wallace was a renowned expert on mineralogy, his topic was not about geology. The title was Ideals of University Cooperation. This speech would prefigure his future career in university administration. 
he would become one of the most eminent university administrators in Canadian history. Yet the fame of Robert Charles Wallace, both for good and for ill, was yet to come at the time of his appearance in Grand Forks. The student reported that he lamented the contemporary trend of parochialism in universities. In contrast, he praised the custom of medieval students to travel from school to school. He talked about how the German student goes from one university to another and is unlikely to finish at the same school they started at. Dr. Wallace lived up to that wandering lifestyle. He earned his degrees from the University of Edinburgh and the University of Göttingen. He would later serve as president of the University of Alberta from 1928 to 1936, vice-chancellor of Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario from 1936 to 1951, and the Arctic Institute from 1951 until his death in 1955. According to the student, he finished by saying, universities stand in cooperation through their professors. They should have a common aim, the inner call of a university or the search for truth for its own sake. Dr. Wallace had an illustrious career, highly regarded according to most conventional metrics of academic success. He did, however, have his critics. Like so many other university professors of his era, Wallace succumbed to the temptations of eugenics. He was an enthusiastic supporter of Alberta's Sexual Sterilization Act of 1928. In his notorious speech to the Canadian Medical Association in 1934, he lamented that virtually nothing had been done to raise the quality of human stock, unlike the quality of the stock in domesticated animals. Today, the contradiction is more apparent between his eugenic activism and what he considered the inner call of a university, the search for truth for its own sake. Today's Decoded Date book was written by Andrew Alexis Varvel. I'm Errol Pepcorn. Dakota Datebook is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota, with funding from Humanities North Dakota. European leaders sent a letter to House Speaker Mike Johnson asking him to release the $60 billion the White House requested for aid to Ukraine. The will to help Ukraine is there, but there is an obstacle which are trying to stop it. It needs a little bit more convincing. The president of the Estonian parliament on why they sent the letter. That's on the next morning edition from NPR News. That's it for this Thursday edition of Main Street. Coming up tomorrow at 3 o'clock Central, it's The Middle with Jeremy Hobson as he talks to Republican Utah Governor Spencer Cox. And in the 7 p.m. hour tomorrow, Science Friday covers news and topics in science, technology, health, and the environment. And we'll see you back here, at least I'll see you (laughs) back. I am getting on a plane tomorrow. (laughs) I am knocking on this wood. (laughs) Back again Monday, right here on Main Street.